1: In this episode, we visit with Kevin McElvoy, author of One Kind Favor, a haunting and nuanced look at past and present racial injustices in the Appalachian Mountains. Ghosts haunt the small Appalachian community of CORD, North Carolina. After a lynching is discovered and covered up, the ghosts of CORD begin to unearth the past truths of racism and social injustice to confront the townspeople and get justice for Lincoln Lennox. Karen E. Bender, a National Book Award finalist and author of Refund, had this to say about the book. Kevin McAvoy is a writer of incisive moral vision, and one kind favor looks at the brutality of racial injustice in North Carolina town with a powerful sense of place and clarity and insight. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's patreoncom coms forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Mac, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Landis.
1: Yeah, and congratulations on this book.
0: Uh, it always feels very lucky to have a book published. Very, very lucky. Um, and of mm-hmm. course, um, this is an exciting time for me as may approaches and the uh, book is then published.
1: Yeah, that's great. And by the time this episode comes out, the book will probably be on the shelves for about two weeks. So that's great. Uh, and I, I want to say, I love your photo. Listeners can, can see it in the show notes. If you were in a certain kind of hat, <laughs> <laughs> t- 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 tell us about the hat.
0: <laughs> well, you you know i um uh my way of writing every day is that uh i um i write for an hour then i blow on my harmonica for half an hour then i write for another 45 minutes i blow on my harmonica for about 20 minutes um write a 4 to 6 hour session um at uh at the end of it um my ear uh is pretty good uh and my chops are pretty good as a harmonica player playing blues harmonica and, and um, it seems only right that uh, if you're going to presume to play the blues, you have the hat to go with it. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so since I've more and more begun to think about a lot of my writing as uh, as a form of song, and in particular, the books that I've written recently as being in a blues mode, almost, um, there's something about that picture that just seemed right to me when the mm. photographer took it.
1: And yeah, I don't want to talk to you about the, the musical element of your writing in a moment. But first, as I looked at that photo, I was trying to figure out, are you tipping your hat in acknowledgment to the reader, or are you trying to hold on, hold it on your head from the swirling plot that you're dealing with?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I that's maybe that's one of the things I like about it too is that um, it seems like I'm trying to hold down uh, yeah, yeah. what might be going on uh, in my head, um, whatever wildness might be going on in my head. Um, but at the same time, I hope it acknowledges a reader by um, having that valence of maybe being uh, me removing the hat and saying, um, thank you for reading my book. Uh, tip of the hat to you.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, listeners, you can check that out at com. You'll find out more about uh, Mac there as well. He's written seven books, uh, A Waltz, The Fifth Station, Little Peg, uh, Hysip, At the Gate of All Wonder, Complete History of New Mexico, Short Story Collection, and 57 Octaves Below Middle Sea, Poetry and Prose, With an accompanying album and this latest book, uh, One Kind Favor. And I want to stop here, uh, Mac, because I'm looking at these titles. I'm seeing a musical theme here. We got a waltz, Mm -hmm. we got the fifth Mm -hmm. station, we got 57 octaves. And also, you have, uh, you know, this, you you sort of infuse this book with the musical element. So let's talk a minute about the intersection of music and your writing.
0: You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because it's very important to my work. Um, I'm a writer. Absolutely shaped by the oral tradition, uh, and um, I on my father's side of the family, there were these amazing storytellers, uh, Irish uh, people, uh, and um, uh, and I'm absolutely sure the reason I'm a storyteller at all is that I was so spellbound by them, and they were like many people in the uh, oral tradition, they were people who were always uh, more or less singing. The story they were telling, uh, and um, and enjoying their own singing, uh, and their own voice uh, enormously. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I took that in as a kid. I'm still shaped by it every time I ever start to write. I think, is this singing what I mean for it to sing? That doesn't mean I'm dismissing what I hope it has to say, but um i uh i have this love of the way we are pulled under in certain stories by what's going on tonally and what's going on um at the pure level of uh, language casting its spell uh and um and of course you always hope underlying that is uh, depth and span of meaning um but uh it is really important to me and it is reflected in those titles. And it is characteristic of everything that I've written and everything that I'm writing.
1: And you talked about your harmonica and and the blues you're playing. The title itself, One Kind Favor, uh, is sort of a a nod to uh, a famous blues song. Could you talk about that?
0: Yeah, it's uh, uh from uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson's uh uh song. Uh and um it's uh the lyric is uh is one kind favor I'll ask of you. Please see that my grave is kept clean. Um and in some cases the recording of uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson's song, the actual title is Please See That My Grave Is Kept Clean, and in other versions uh, one kind favor. Uh the um uh the one of the awful hidden truths of the horrific tradition of lynching in the South is not just the assault on um, the bodies of the people who were lynched, um, but a tradition that exists to this day of desecrating repeatedly the grave of the person. So the people who have committed the lynching are not done yet, ever. Um, they feel that they must then find the grave, no matter where it is, um, in which the um, the family and the friends of uh, this uh, erased person um, can be placed, and have repeatedly desecrated that grave. And this is um, what this is the horror that uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson is referring directly to in that blues song.
1: Yeah, well, that kind of leads us right into the what if for this book. Uh, so let's talk about that for a minute. Sort of this story that you read and heard about that uh, started your writer brain, you know, at work.
0: Yeah, um, there was an actual incident um, in uh, North Carolina in uh, August of 2014, reported on by Ed Pilkington of The Guardian, whose beat is the American South. Uh, And um, his article, um, uh, based on careful uh, research, uh, asserted that um, this death of this young high school age uh, black man um, was a suicide uh, and um, that he saw all the evidence that, in fact, it was a lynching that had been covered up. Um, There were many people, uh, it turns out, in the town who believed that, who still believe it. Um, the um, uh, uh, Lennox uh, uh, Lacey, who was the young man um, uh, lynched, his family to this day uh, still believes that this was a cover-up of a lynching. Um, and there is nothing, nothing that anyone, uh, even someone highly subjective, um, can reasonably assert looking at the evidence that um, this was not a lynching um but um it was very effectively covered up both by um local law enforcement it was covered up by state um uh, elected figures and it was um covered up by um the press in regards to the press initially ignoring it and waiting a great long while before then even questioning what had been the story uh that they had been told. Uh, And um, this story uh, struck me very, very deeply. Uh, And um, it's the kind of thing that I I know you know that as a storyteller, you always hope that what finds you overwhelms you. Not what finds you that you're ready for um, as a writer, but what finds you really overwhelms you in a, a very deep way and that um you can then enter in the vulnerable condition of someone who has to ask, am I the person to tell this story? Uh and um uh and so I did. I, I read it I I uh took my own uh emotional temperature in regards to uh welcoming it and began writing immediately.
1: And we're going to see the level of that emotional temperament in the first chapter, which you're going to read in a little bit, because we get a we get a a real sense of uh, sort of uh, what the narrator's view of this little town is, you know, right off the bat uh, in the first couple of pages. Um, but before that, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, one of which is, you said you said that this book here, One Kind Favor, um, is one of the most important works of your life. Why is that?
0: Well. I I feel very lucky, first of all, that I've lived to be 67. I feel very lucky that um, I've ever had anything published. Um, That's all been just a series of lucky breaks. Um, and, um, And I've always felt... Um, satisfied in my life as a writer because with each book, I, f- I, f- I see the evidence that I've grown and developed. And I see the evidence, of course, of all the ways in which I still need to uh, develop and to grow as a storyteller. But um, uh, with each book, I think any uh, writer uh, hopes that everything you've written before then has prepared you for what this book will ask of you Mm. and i i hope that um it's not just the uh, commitment to to your work over in my case five decades um that has prepared me for it um but that my very life has uh, prepared me for it Uh, i lived in new mexico before moving to north carolina um 13 years ago Uh, i'm a midwestern boy by origin um and um and there's a certain degree to which uh living in North Carolina um and saying to myself, um, am I a North Carolina? Uh, am I am I that? Do I identify myself that way? Um in this landscape, in this culture um that is unique in its values, uh and um and could say to myself, Yes, I am, and here is a work that will also carry me deeper into my sense of how it matters to me that I'm a North Carolinan.
1: Well, that's interesting. You, you talk about this uh, experience you've had publishing these books. We're going to listeners, uh, you're in for a treat after this. I'm going to tease out now. We're going to have a Patreon episode after this is over where Mac and I are going to go over and talk about uh, how, how you can, uh, well, I guess how age can make a difference in your writing. I mean, uh, you know, you, you've done all this successful, uh, publishing. You had a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. You had some short fiction published. You've had all these books. You've been a former editor-in-chief of a literary magazine. You've taught for years, uh, Warren Wilson College and New Mexico State College, and yet you're still learning. And we're going to talk about that a little bit when we get over to, to Patreon. But I want to ask this question now. You said that you do not seek out the stories that you can master, but the ones that can master you. And I find that very interesting because as writers, we we sometimes want to t- we sometimes want to make sure we can accomplish and master something <laughs> to get, to get it out in the world and you're saying no 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 i want the ones that master me now the fact that it took you from 2014 to 2021 is that what you mean by getting mastered you know by a project or is it something else
0: Yeah, it's a great question uh, landis um the reason it took 5 years from beginning to end uh to write this book um is that oddly weirdly that seems hardwired In me. Um, If you had asked me years ago, I would have said, um, as I started writing my second book, oh, I'll bet I'll write this one faster than the first one. Um, The third book, oh, I'll bet I'll go faster. I bet it'll go faster. Um, And and there's no question that I've all these years written at a very dedicated level. I don't step away from a project when I'm in it. I'm working hard on it every minute, um, every day for the five years that I'm working on it. Um, but some things do seem hardwired (laughs) and it is hardwired in me that, um, I seem to move from the pre-writing through, uh, the writing into the revising. And then I am very, very rigorous about revising. It's not unusual for me to end up with 12 different, sometimes 14 different drafts of a book before I say. this is finished. Um, I, I'm also, in terms of the 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 moment when I say this is done, this book is done. I'm very informed by the books that I love the best, um, and the books I love the best um, are uh, are books by uh, people like uh, Toni Morrison, people by like. Um, Uh, Baldwin, uh, and uh, people like uh, Steinbeck. Um, When I read Grapes of Wrath, um, I say to myself, you know what, this isn't a finished book. This is a magnificent wreck. This is a magnificent wreck. He was in over his head, and he uh, brought his soul and his heart to every moment of it. Um, And had he lived longer, he would have written Um, a a different book. Um, But uh, some books do, they have the sense, you know, this writer is in over his head, thank God, he's in over his head, because what he has brought us um, is something that part of its very resonance is that it is kind of a wreck. It's no mistake, by the way, that for many people, that's what the blues sound like to them. When they listen to blues music, especially the the blues music I like the best, which is the Delta Blues Bottleneck, informed by uh, gospel, it sounds to people like it's not blues and it's not gospel. Like it's not guitar, it's something else because of that bottleneck bouncing all over the neck of the guitar. And many people, when they listen to the blues, um, they say, you know what, that's kind of a mess. Uh, And um, especially. Uh, Blue singers like Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Willie uh, Johnson, who moaned as often as they sang, uh, They, um, you listen to that and you say, oh, wow, this is a person in so deep that um, we are in on a kind of private conversation they are having with themselves, and it hasn't been perfected for an outside audience. Thank God. Thank God.
1: So, so as I'm reading this book, I mean, it, it's not the—I'm uh, not sure exactly what style you would describe the writing that you've chosen. Because you just talked about blues being a certain way to 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 get uh, music out into the world. You've chosen a certain way of writing to get this story out into the world, which might require somebody who's not, you know, who maybe t- to use your analogy is maybe they like uh, you know a song that country music, you can understand the lyrics, you just follow along, and there you go, you got them. But in blues, you've got to really think harder, process, and you've done a little of that for the reader here. What do you say to the reader who picks up this book and and sees this uh, blues compendium here uh, in front of them to to make sense of it, or are you hoping that they will come to their own conclusions? You know, it's
0: true that a book has to earn um, a reader saying, this is the book for me. Uh, And um, I I try always to um, understand with clarity, with uh, humility, that what I write is not for everyone, Um, that um, it will be more powerful for some readers than others. I think most of us who work in the oral tradition... um, we'll find that uh, people who uh, have never really experienced the oral tradition don't know how to like a book like Twain's uh, The Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they, they just don't. It, it seems to them like a book that has been screamed and sung uh, um, and um, hasn't actually been quote-unquote written Um uh, the the writer, uh, Julio Cortázar, a writer I, I greatly admire, uh, he says he writes his books in what he calls the carnivalesque mode, um, in which instead of having the sense that the novel will move you in a direction that feels like act one, scene one, scene two, act two, scene one, um, that has that sense of progression – that it is as if you were in a carnival and um all kinds of things are happening around you that are coming at you um in mm-hmm. different moments mm-hmm. uh and um and i think it it's fair to say that this is closer to a kind of carnivalesque mode than what um, is the mode that is uh, more conventional? Um, that's not a uh, me in any way criticizing the conventional approach. I I love the conventional uh, novel, but um, I think it's always good to remind yourself. Well, what I write, I'm proud of. Um, I, I don't want to presume that it would be for all all readers.
1: No, no. What, what I'm saying is, uh, it's not so much a critique as is I've interviewed over. 220 authors now. And one of the things I like about this is getting, you know, a variety of of different, uh, genres and writing styles. And so when I pick it up, I just have to be prepared to say, okay, wait a minute. I got to think a little bit differently here as I'm reading, you know, this particular book, you know, and and that's what I had to do. Let's do this. We we got a reading here. Uh, this will sort of set up the, uh, the, 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 the setting, uh, here, which is, uh, uh, it's a little town in North Carolina. is the first. we're starting on the first page, so maybe we don't need a setup. Let's just start with the uh, with uh, chapter one, and then we'll talk a bit after you finish reading it.
0: Naming matters here in Cord, which was once called Cord with an H, and before that, Curd. The most prominent business in town is the combined bar and consignment shop owned first by Minister Stanley, and next by Miss Acker, and last by Junior Stanley. Rather than make a fresh sign, Miss Acker added her name when she was the new owner. When Junior took over, he crossed her name through and added his. Reflecting no hard feelings, the sign, Stanley's Acker's Stanleys, told the story just fine. Eventually, Miss Acker was manager of the consignment, Junior was manager of the bar, and Minister Stanley was the all-around staffer. For generations of locals, Stanleys, Acker, Stanleys has been a place of escape. Every community has such rabbit holes for those of us wishing to be ourselves and true selves and other selves. If you were a new regular, you were called Rig, until people knew the name you wanted to go by. We understood that white presences and black presences were regulars that they stayed, returned, were never gone long. We have known about the presences since the race murders here, 150 years of them, and since the time when Civil War Confederates and their descendants settled in this area, and since the first slaves arrived in chains and were assigned to tobacco or cotton farms, renamed, reassigned, resold and since the years when Reconstruction cynically redefined the term free citizen. During the period since the Voting Rights Act, we have begrudgingly accepted the place name that does not appear on the town welcome sign. Exactly at the beginning of the Obama administration, our white population here first began to openly take pride in the specific designation, Crackertown. The Klan dead are here, and the living Klan is here. The dead NRA that values life and the living NRA that values profit is here. The Jim Crow Democrat dead are here, and the living Jim Crow and Jesus Crow jackboot white supremacists are here. The dead election riggers, so quiet but so brazen, are here. The living election riggers, granted permission by the U.S. Supreme Court on June 25, 2013, pay cash to buy election results that favor Trump publicans who cannot win office without subverting the voting franchise. The war dead are here, and the living civilians and veterans who honor them are here. And here are the happy witnesses to the draft-dodging, illegitimate president spitting on the stones and into the open graves. Defending family and community against minority rights, the Southern Baptists here became the official religion of American apartheid before sesquicentennially healing, declining church enrollments through racial reconciliation, then late in the 20th century, beginning their relentless effort to defend family and community against the rights of transgender and gay people and the autonomy of women and the safety of refugee children and families. The United Methodist Church's sole dead believers in old-school religious fundamentalism speak their poison words here and the louder and louder homunculus word-of-faith cult and cults like it grow from the evangelical spore. The moneyed who die sucking the poor dry are here sucking coke and pope, and more of the coke-suckers and the suck-popes and mercenaries are here than ever before, now that the Red Hats rule us, blood and soil."
1: yeah thank you mac that was uh, that was great i you know, as I'm listening to you read here, having read the book and listening to it again there there are a number of things that jump out in this very first chapter here Of course, you're setting the the scene for the town, which is you come away with a very visual as to the kind of people you know who live here uh but you had some humor too Stanley acker Stanley. they can't see it, but there's a cross a line crossing through Acker's because when the next Stanley came along instead of building a new sign. He just crosses through Akers, and it becomes mm. Stanley, Acker, Stanley, right? Mm. Um, tell us what the presences are, because that becomes important in the book, too.
0: The presences are ghosts, really, um, though they um, may not be exactly the kinds of ghosts that are um, completely familiar. Um, in other words, there are ghosts in the town who um, people understand really are ghosts of people long gone and there are ghosts in the town who are ghost-like and might have actually um um lived 100 200 800 years ago and are in their town but the townspeople can't tell is that uh is that a living ghost a dead ghost what form of ghost is that uh and um uh, and then there are uh, people uh, in the work who are ghost-like and only late in the story are revealed to, yes, actually be uh, people who have long been dead, um, but who are among them. Uh, and um, uh, and that there are people dead and among them who are invisible but present. Uh, and... Um, uh, and so there is, for instance, a character, uh, Union Vetter, who um, no one ever sees Union. Um, they will hear the cash register um, suddenly open. Um, they will hear something in the room that um, makes them think, could that be Union? But none of us have seen Union since he died in 1959. Uh, and, um, um, and so there is a sense... Of um these presences, and there is a sense potently that um some of those are black presences, which in this community means um people who may have come to a violent end uh and um uh, and so uh, this is it's a it's a kind of a complex thing set up mm. early in the work about the nature of presences uh and it is something that I think we uh we are aware of. Um, When a community is self-conscious about its history, um, the debate about its presences, uh, even when it's not spoken, is powerfully always present. If you take, for instance, the, um, the contemporary debate um, having to do with Confederate monuments in uh, towns like Asheville uh, and other towns. Um, and you ask yourself, why is that so heated? Why why is that so charged for everyone on all sides of uh, the issue? Uh, and it has to do with living in a place where um, history is not dismissed and erased uh, and people simply move on. They They carry it in their bodies, in their souls, the sense of history. Uh, it is one of many gifts of um, Southern culture is that people do um, uh, hold on to uh, things that um, that matter to their heart, even in ways that they don't exactly understand. Um, and they don't just simply uh, as some people say of quote unquote progressives, move on, move on. Let's go to the next thing. Let's forget that. Can't we just put that aside? Uh, and um, so it comes from partly my um, understanding from within the book um, about what is what is present in a town that is meant to sort of uh, uh, represent uh, a town, um, uh, a, a a rural town in the south.
1: Mm, yeah, and these uh, presences are speaking from the grave and playing a part through this book. And you you do a good job in this first couple of pages of not only bringing in modern day uh, political conflict. Uh, you mention you know the living and the dead clan. You mentioned the NRA. You mentioned Trump Republicans, but you also harken back to this term, the red hats, which I know from interviewing previous authors was instrumental in the early 1900s and and, uh, sort of getting Jim Crow, you know, off the ground and the race riots in Wilmington at the time. So I guess my question here is, uh, you know, sometimes an antagonist can be a person. It could be these, the people that actually killed, you know, this young, young boy in in the book, but it could also be maybe uh, more of a, uh, system, maybe, and racism, yeah. for example. So, it seems to me that that seems to be more the antagonist than anything else in this book.
0: Yes, I, I'm. I'm uh, I think that's a very generous and uh, uh, perceptive reading of of what the book uh, offers. Um, is, I, I do mean for the book um, to, at all points, um, be compassionate and clear. Um, sometimes being clear seems cruel, um, but to be compassionate and clear, um the forms of satire that I um admire as a as a reader um are the ones that um that are uh, compassionate they're complex, they allow people their own mystery and complexity um at the same time that they are asserting certain things that seem quite clear. Uh, and um, and there are there are different modes of of satire. Um, some are what people call the Horatian mode, which is a gentle, instructive mode, and and some are um, the Swiftian mode, in which the satire itself is meant not only to cut, um, but to at times cut deeply and to at times draw blood. Uh, and um, paradoxically, to uh, draw blood. Um, as if you are one of the people that uh, deserves to be uh, stabbed and struck Mm. in this very way. Uh, And um, uh, so, yeah, that's, I I appreciate that reading of the book.
1: Sure. And just for our listeners, just a little bit of information here. Lincoln Lennox is, he's found lynched. His death is ruled suicide and is sort of swept under the rug right away. Uh, Several investigators come into the mix that are both presents and present mm-hmm, mm-hmm. make that distinction and uh and you've got a character here which you draw on from i think you're a fan of uh kathy acker she was a novelist uh and uh she was sort of an experimental novelist i think playwright essayist postmodern kind of uh, i've looked her up here but she dealt with some of these issues like childhood trauma and sexuality you name a character acker in the book is mm-hmm. that is that is that in her honor and could you speak to the acker character
0: yeah acker was um the first american writer uh writer who people um identified as a um punk novelist uh <laughs> and um that she was of the same sensibility as the punk musicians um who were offering very raw um kinds of uh, work and um that um uh, that was um that was that was strange for people to read because it was so raw, uh, and um, she sometimes referred to her work as um, as much a scrawl as it was a writing. Uh, her book "Blood and Guts in High School" um, has a uh, graffiti in it, and um, the writing itself shares in common some of the odd energies of uh, graffiti. If I allow someone like that, who actually was a real person um into my work uh i hope that it uh, means that i am uh asking her consciousness to uh, be one of the things that tempers the work that um that if this work for instance had any inclination to be um shy or um to uh, be too restrained in an effort, um, to be cool or to be right, um, that Acker would not like that. And she lives in this book, uh, and she is not going to let the author who is making it, um, be someone who inadvertently or directly is making excuses for himself. Uh, and so I feel like Acker is, um, A a sort of a, a presence for me of a conscience that we don't necessarily identify as existing in the South. We don't think of people as unconventional, as Kathy Acker uh, living in a rural town. The truth is that many rural towns make room for someone as unconventional and strange and odd as Mm -hmm. Kathy Acker Mm -hmm. and then don't quite know what to do about how readily they welcomed that person. And the person doesn't quite know whether or not they ever fit but have a sense that they are where they belong. She is somebody who has fled from having lived in big cities like London and New York City and knows that where she belongs is cord. And that means that where she belongs is a place with a violent history um, and with uh, a a sense that at any moment she could be um, a victim of that violence. Uh, And um, so...
1: So one last question on the book, and then I got a couple of writing life questions real quick. But uh, there's a quote in the book. Uh, I want to share that and then ask you a question about it. It says, there should have been some kind of smoke. We all, black and white folks, felt it, which does not mean we unequivocally wish for it. The stinking aftermath of hate crime should have traveled out from this place he was lynched, out to the other Piedmont counties, to the other regions of North Carolina, and to the progressive South and through the backward progressing south to the indifferent, smug, educated, and woke city whites into the hanging hungry, proudly uneducated and fantasized and evangelized white nationalist fanatics of our rural towns. I mean, that's a very powerful text there in this book, and I'm just wondering, having read it, are you hoping maybe that one kind favor may be a little bit of that smoke?
0: It's possible um, for um, this story i think um to uh um to be a part of what is a larger picture of writers who are marginalized writers who are uh, writing some of the most exciting work in the united states right now um it, it's um it's certainly not from my own perspective um a book that uh that on its own uh, does that important work of uh, of of consciousness and of conscience Uh, searching. Um, But I do believe, sincerely, that that is a dimension of Mm -hmm. the book. uh, And I'm glad that it is. Um, I believe it is that way, authentically. Um, There are so many exciting works of literature right now that are um, asking that urgent question that is in our culture more urgently than ever. Um, uh, And it does have to do with naming, which... Uh, is uh, intentionally the very first moment of this book, Naming Matters Here Mm -hmm. in Court, because um, the the sort of battle cry of the conscience in this moment is, will you say her name? Mm. Will you say the name of the person who was just murdered in the street only for being Black? Will you say the name of the Black 12 year old who um was in a playground um and uh was shot by three police uh as if he was some kind of threat uh and um so um the, the book is it is of its culture of its moment uh and um and i hope i hope that in some small way it joins the other urgent voices of our culture at this moment
1: yeah well, it's a great contribution to that and uh you for that I only have time for like uh one or two writing life questions. I think I I'm going to pick one that I that I like to ask uh, particularly of authors like yourself who've written a number of books and who've been teaching for years. If you could tell your younger writing self something very helpful that might have encouraged, helped, uh done something of value for that younger writing person, what would it be based on all your experience?
0: I I do know the answer to that because I'm still um learning it, and I'm still teaching myself it in every writing session. Take pleasure in the smallest enigmas, paradoxes, and wonders of language itself. And, um, and don't immediately start um, reaching after what is the bigger thing? What am I saying? And how am I saying it? And to whom? And will there be an audience for it? And is anyone ever going to listen to what I have to say? Um, Remind yourself that um, four words, five words, if you uh, stare long enough into them, if you live with them, long enough, um, have in them um, music and wonder and awe and have in them the dark uh, uh, envelope of beauty and have inside that dark envelope um, the luminous aspects of beauty that language itself just gives up to us um, in a single sentence. Uh, There's always the temptation, I think it's especially true for early writers, but all your life to say I've written this sentence um and I'm racing on to the next sentence. I'm moving on because after all, that's what it's all about. Uh and um, you know, uh Basho didn't believe that. Uh the great poet Basho, who thought that in 17 syllables you had enough. <laughs> and um uh and great artists uh of all kinds. I believed that the smallest moment um, is the thing to stare at and gaze into, a long time.
1: Mm. Well, uh, Mac, you're a deep thinker, and we're going to get some more of that benefit in just a moment when we get over to our Patreon channel. Because listeners, we're going to we're going to talk about how you know age uh, can can make a difference in writing, uh, in a good way, in a, in a different way, in an interesting way. You know, things like uh, how you might uh, compose and revise, how you might find or picture your readers, how you might. Interact with agents and editors, how you might respond to reviews and rejection and things like that. So you can check that out at uh, our Patreon channel. That's com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, all one word. Hey, Mac, look, I want to thank you so much uh, for uh, being on Charlotte Readers Podcast and look forward to talking to you some more on our Patreon channel.
0: This is a great opportunity for me. I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Uh, and um, I, I wish you and all of the Charlotte Readers. Um, the best
1: well that's it for today another fine author giving voice to the written words you can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast Stitcher Spotify, iHeartRadio and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on